Hitting rock bottom doesn't mean you have to stay there. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep with a true miracle, Tom Wolf. Now, in 2018, Tom was a homeless opioid addict living on the streets of San Francisco, doing whatever he could to feed his addiction. And by the grace of God, he was granted the gift of recovery. And now he is a recovery advocate doing whatever the hell he can to make real changes to address this horrible addiction epidemic that has engulfed this city. And I will be talking to Tom about all of this. And I will say that this is a topic that I get a little heated over. I get a little worked up over this topic, as you'll hear in the conversation. But what is happening to this city is truly tragic. And perhaps this headline from December of 2020 will help put things in perspective for you. Overdose deaths far outpace COVID-19 deaths in San Francisco. A record of 621 people died of drug overdoses in San Francisco so far this year, a staggering number that far outpaces the 173 deaths from COVID-19 the city has seen thus far. And God, I remember reading this headline and just being so pissed off. There are over 8,000 homeless people living on the streets of San Francisco. I've heard statistics say that half of those are addicts. I would venture to say it's a lot more than half. And it is a regular sight to see people shooting up on the sidewalk or smoking a meth pipe. There were over 700 fatal overdoses in 2020, and this is compared to 441 in 2019, and it's looking like 2021 will surpass the 2020 numbers. It is just so sad. There are so many people out there suffering, and in my opinion, I don't think that the city is doing enough to help. And let me just say, I do not have the answers. I don't know how to fix this fucking problem, but what I can say is that What is being done to address the problem isn't making anything better. To me, it seems like things just keep getting worse. I've lived here for over seven years and have just seen the homeless and addiction crisis continue to progress. And I will tell you, it's something that you don't get used to. There is no exposure tolerance that occurs. To be exposed to the darkest aspects of humanity, to see human suffering on some of the darkest levels on a daily basis is truly soul-crushing. So about two months prior to the shelter-in-place order, I started taking a 12-step meeting into the Women's County Jail here. And I remember going the first time and, and being a little nervous. I was afraid that the ladies would think I was super lame and, and too high of a bottom. But they were actually big fans of me. But one of the things that I asked them was, are you given information about treatment centers when you are released? And a few of them said that they had been given treatment information in previous times that they were released from jail, 
but that when they went to these treatment centers, that there were not any availability. When I left that day, I went home and I decided that I wanted to investigate a little bit. And I did some Google searching and I was expecting to find articles saying how there's not enough treatment centers and how, you know, they're always at 100% capacity. And that was not what I found. And what I found was articles talking about how over the past several years, the amount of services that the city has been providing, addiction and mental health services, has actually been declining over the past few years. Yes, blood boiling. But I will get into this with Tom, um, and he provided a little bit of information and insight on that that just made me even more pissed off. But what am I hoping that you're going to take away from this conversation with Tom? Three things. One, inspiration. Tom is someone who essentially lost everything and found himself in a situation that is extremely difficult to climb out of. And while it is possible, it is not the norm. But he managed to overcome the situation and rebuild his life. And now he is contributing so much good to this world. Number two, compassion. Compassion for those who are in the position that Tom once found himself in. Regardless of circumstances and decisions that one may have made to find themselves in that situation, I'm pretty damn sure that no one woke up one day and made a conscious decision to become a homeless addict and criminal. And lastly, gratitude. There are so many people out there that are suffering in ways that we or I can't even imagine. And this isn't said to minimize the difficult hands that many of us have been dealt or to minimize our experiences, our pain. But I'm assuming that all of you listening to these words right now have a roof over your head and food to eat and certain resources that those living on the streets do not have. So we need to be fucking grateful for that. One more quick thing before I go to Tom So tomorrow, or rather today, if you're listening on the day that it's being released, July 28th, I am told that my episode with Dr. Drew will be released. I'll put a link to his show in the show notes. So please go take a listen. He has several podcasts, but it's going to be on the Dr. Drew podcast. Also big news, I'm having Dr. Drew on my show. I will be recording with him in the beginning of August. So that is super exciting, guys. So yeah, let's go on to Tom. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago, and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. 
Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com podcast. Done, turn ADHD into your strength. So it is my pleasure to introduce Tom Wolf. He is a recovery advocate and he is out there in San Francisco. This, the city is fucking nuts and Tom is out there doing the Lord's work. So welcome, Tom. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for having me. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while when I found you on Twitter originally, but you... You got addicted to opiates in 2015. Now, I always say this, and I'm sure other people do. Opiates is really the only thing that if you never had any substance abuse issues in your past, like that is the one thing that could turn you into an addict. I, you know, I would agree with that. I, it, just because of the sheer potency and the addictive nature of the drug itself, I mean... You know, I had addictive tendencies and other things like, you know, I'd go to Vegas and I'd gamble too much and lose too much money or I, you know, you, you drink too much, you know, over the weekend and you end up praying to the porcelain goddess and that would happen, you know, maybe at one time too many, you know, uh, but it's not like something that became a constant thing, but my addiction really manifested with opioids. Because that's what I was going to ask you, if you were just somebody that like never had any addiction or if it was in your family or not, or if you were just kind of this like helpless person with no real genetic disposition or any of the you know characteristics, and then you just got hooked because that's what your doctor prescribed you. But it sounds like you, you were still an addict in some capacity. Yeah. So alcoholism runs in my family. I have a couple of siblings that are in recovery uh, from alcoholism. Uh, you know, I remember as back as being as young as 10 years old, uh, visiting my grandfather, who was an old World War II veteran. Uh, he lived in Las Vegas, and I'd visit him. And at 10.30 in the morning, he'd be like, hey, Tom, go to the kitchen and fix me a bourbon and soda. And I remember as a 10-year-old mixing that drink, thinking, wow, this smells really good. This is really cool. I get to mix a drink from my grandfather. And he was, you know, a, a, an alcoholic too. So definitely, it's a generational thing. It's just that my addiction manifested instead of alcohol, it manifested with, with opioids and eventually heroin and fentanyl. So why don't you talk about start in 2015 and why don't you tell us how you got here? Well, you know, I, I had foot surgery. I had, I had to have a couple of... Uh, screws inserted into my right foot, some titanium screws. And, um, after the surgery, you know, I was in a boot and I was on one of those, uh, you know, those, those wheel wheelie things that you wheel around and that you kneel on the one, the one legger. It's like, the one -legger full go. Right. That, <laughs> that, that, that was me. That, that was me. And, you know, they sent me home with a month's supply of 10 milligram oxycodone, uh, tablets after the hospital. And uh, I remember, you know, I'd start taking them for pain and they weren't, you know, they're not Percocets. They're not cut with acetaminophen or Tylenol or anything like that. They, this is just pure Roxycodone, uh, which is 10 milligram oxys. And I started taking them and, you know, I took one and it not only took the pain away, but it made me feel loopy. And I knew that they would make me feel loopy because, you know, I've had my wisdom teeth out in the past and they've given me Vicodin and things like that. Right. But, uh, you know, I was in a lot of pain. So one day I popped two and I got really high. And one day I popped three and that was, that was like the hit right there when I hit 30 milligrams in one shot. 
for the amount of pain that you were in and having the surgery that you had, do you think that that was um, reckless of the doctor to give you that prescription? Well, you know, you look at in retrospect, you could say yes, um, be, because there's been this history of over prescription of opioids in the medical field, right? But at the same time, I was in a lot of pain, I'm not going to lie. And it wasn't the kind of pain that Aleve or that Advil was going to take care of. I needed something stronger. And, you know, I couldn't drive for the first few weeks after surgery because it was my right foot. I couldn't use it on the gas pedal and the brake. Um, so under those circumstances, while yes, it's a lot at the same time, I guess you can, I can understand why they would give it to me so they could limit the amount of visits I would have to make to the hospital coming back to do checkups and all that stuff. Yeah, of course. That's what it's all about. <laughs> it's not really, it's kind of about you, right, but it's, it's not it's really. <laughs> Hey, it's all about convenience, right? You know, I want to, no, they want to make me comfortable, right? And that's the whole thing with pain medicine. It makes you, that, that's the thing. Like if you talk to heroin addicts on the street, a lot of them, and you go to them and you say, what's one word that you could use to describe how heroin makes you feel? And more often than you think, the word that they use is comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I was. I was, I got comfortable. Uh, and no, no, I had no marital issues, no financial problems. They went away. Uh, the pain was gone. I was just super happy chilling on my couch, watching the Giants came like not a care in the world. And 30 milligrams of oxycodone gave that feeling to me for about three to four hours. And then it progressed from there. And I started chewing them like candy. Then I figured out that you could crush them up and snort them. Uh, and, uh, that kind of started me off to the races. And then when I started running out of that supply, which was supposed to last me a month, uh, in about 10 days, I was running out already. Um, and so I was taking less and I started to go into withdrawal. I was breaking out into sweats. Uh, I was started thinking about the drug, like obsessing over the drug. How can I get more? Where can I get more? So of course I tried to refill the prescription and I couldn't because it was, uh, less than 30 days in that window. So, you know, instead of doctor shopping, like some people have the propensity to do, I started looking online on the internet of where I can buy pills on the street in San Francisco, because I know that San Francisco is like drug Mecca. And sure enough, I went on YouTube and I found some references to Pill Hill, which is Golden Gate and Leavenworth. And, uh, you know, even though I wasn't supposed to drive, I made it, I, I got in my car and I drove down there and uh, got out with the boot and all. You know, uh, and went up to the corner of Golden Gate and Lev, and I found about five different guys selling a variety of different opioids uh, on the street on demand, from 30 milligram oxycodones to all the way up to 80 milligram OP80s. So this is your first trip into the tenderloin, okay? And granted, you you don't really look like somebody that should belong there or not. So, and you've never done this before, and the tenderloin is a scary place. So, like, what what did you do? Did you just walk up to like, you saw a guy that you thought was a dealer and then you walked up to him and asked, like, how, how did that happen? Well, you, you bring up a great point. So I don't look like I'm supposed to be there. Right. So the, the, the dealers see that and they know that I'm there for that. So I had five guys come up to me saying, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And I was like, uh, I need, I need oxycodone. Well, I got 30 milligram right here. How much? $30 the pill. Okay. So I started buying uh, I bought like five of them. I think I spent 150 bucks and I would break them in half and take them. Uh, and then a couple of days later, I was back down there doing it again and doing it again. And then one guy introduced me to 40 milligram oxycodones, OP forties. I started buying those, which are time release. Uh, but you can get around that. There's ways to get around that. And so, and then a few times I got hustled, you know, where the guy gave me blood pressure medicine instead of oxycodone. 
uh, or something like that. And that, you know, and now just to, just to jump forward real quick to now, what's happening now is that people are getting hustled and that they're being sold fake roxycodone, fake oxy 30 milligram tablets that are really illicit fentanyl. And then they're taking them and overdosing and dying. So I'm fortunate that in 2015, 2016, the fentanyl wasn't there yet. So if I was getting hustled, I'd get hustled with, you know, blood pressure meds. Yeah. I feel so grateful that I never got into opiates. I mean, I was a trash can, right? Like as a teenager, just like going through, if I was at somebody's house, just like going through their medicine cabinets and I would take whatever, but I never enjoyed, um, I never really enjoyed the opiate high. So I just feel so fucking grateful that I never got into that or meth. You know, I just, I feel like that's just like totally different ball game with those two drugs. It is a different ball game, and you know, I'll I'll also say that crack cocaine is real prevalent on the street in San Francisco still to this day, uh, and a lot of us that were using heroin out there on the street were also using crack uh, as a stimulant, so uh, because it's cheap and it got you real high and it would keep you most of the time from nodding out completely because if you nodded out all the way, uh, you'd wake up and everything you had was gone. Is that a speedball? Would, would have robbed you. Uh, it's, it can be done as a speedball or it's called a Belushi when you smoke it mi- mixed with heroin. Um, they call it a Belushi. Uh, and then goofballs, of course, are meth and heroin mixed together or meth and fentanyl mixed together. And, you know, you smoke it, snort it, you shoot it. It doesn't really matter. I want to know who gets to be the one that picks the nick the nicknames. You said Goofy. What was the other one? How can I get that job where I get to be the one to, to name so, the so, and, <laughs> and and I don't I don't know if this is true or not, but you know, uh, John Belushi overdosed on a combination of heroin and cocaine. So I, I think that's why people call it a Belushi, where you basically are you melt down a little bit of crack on your foil with your heroin that you smoke and you smoke it together. And when you smoke it together, the vapors kind of taste like beer a little bit and it gets you kind of high. And it's a very popular thing that people do out there on the street. And then goofballs are like speedballs, goofballs, but it's with a, a mix of meth and heroin or meth and fentanyl. That's a goofball. And that maybe, really makes you act goofy. Maybe Goofy from the Disney movies was actually an opiate addict. We just didn't know the goofball. Maybe, or a meth addict, or both. <laughs> Goof, goofball. I want to be the name picker. That's sick. But um, right. so, okay, so you're, you know, you're going back and forth three few days and continue. Right. So, uh, you know, that addiction of buying pills progressed over time. I ended up finding one dealer. He was an OG. Uh, that used to get a script from the VA. He was an old veteran and he would sell, he would get two scripts, one for morphine uh, and one for 80 milligram oxycodone. And he would keep half the morphine for him, for his pain. And he would sell the rest of his script on the street. And I found, once I found that guy, he was my main dedicated dealer that I would buy pills from. And I spent you know, thousands, thousands of over a hundred thousand dollars on pills in the course of, you know, one, two, three, three years, basically. Mm. So, you know, $33,000 a year on pills. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until kind of like my wife found out because of the bills weren't being paid and we were behind in the mortgage because I was taking my whole check and, uh, using it for drugs. And I want to just say that, you know, I was off work about six months because of my foot surgery, but I ended up going back to work and I went back to work full as a full blown opioid addict. I was working for the city and county of San Francisco, struggling with opioid addiction. And I managed to maintain that job um, for a few more months doing that uh, into 2017. And again, like I said, when the levy broke, when my wife kind of found out that I was using all the money for drugs, 
the money started getting cut off and I could no longer afford 30 to $35 a pill. Did she not know that you were using? Like she couldn't tell that you fucked up? So, yeah, but you know, denial is a very powerful thing. Codependency is a very powerful thing. Um, so let's just be honest, you know, a lot, how many families have addicts living with them where they know they're getting effed up, but they're doing everything in their head to try to tell themselves that that's not really what's happening. Right. And of course I was lying through my teeth and she had no reason to, to not believe me because I'd never lied for her to her before. And all the, the 20 year, the 17 years at the time that I've been married to her. Right. So all of a sudden here come all these lies, here come all these stories, here comes all this bullshit. And uh, you know, and plus $100,000 gone, um, that left a lot of unanswered questions, right? For me, the only question was, is that how can I continue my addiction because I can no longer afford to buy these pills at 30 bucks a pop, which by the way, my addiction had progressed to 560 milligrams a day. I was taking seven 80 milligram oxycodone tablets every single day. How much is that per day? cost two hundred and two hundred and ten dollars a day that I was spending on my habit. I started buying, you know, taking one to two 30 milligram tablets a day when I was buying them off the street. So I was maybe at 60 bucks a day and it went up to 210 a day. And then when the money ran out, I had a choice. I went down back down there to get more pills and I had 30 bucks in my pocket. And it was like, okay, do I buy one pill with this or should I just jump the shark and buy heroin, which I know I could get one block away at Golden Gate and Hyde for 10 bucks. And um, I made the choice. I walked down there and I bought a dime of heroin and I took it home and I melted it in a little canister that I had like a cooker. And I had syringes in the house because I, at the time I was taking insulin for diabetes because I weighed 310 pounds at the time. I was really overweight. And uh, I, instead of taking insulin, I shot heroin. And yeah, I was really bad at shooting heroin, by the way. I just want to say, I, I went on YouTube and I found the the harm reduction, you know, things that show you how to shoot properly and all that. And I still effed it up pretty bad. And uh, I ended up giving myself sepsis um, for missing all the time, missing the vein and I would mus muscling the heroin. Um, so now I have 24 scars on my body as a reminder of my addiction and how bad it how, how, how much it can ravage your body. Let's put it that way. Um, I spent six days in the hospital, two of those days in intensive care. I was intubated when I had sepsis and you would have thought that that would have been enough, uh, but it wasn't. Um, I lied to the doctors and I said, no, I'm not an intravenous drug user. I, this is a spider bite. This is how I got sepsis, which is a bunch of crap. Of course they knew the truth. Right. So they gave me hydromorphone for the pain in the hospital. So I was high as a kite in the hospital and uh, went home with a third, with another 30 tablets of dilated from the hospital. So my addiction just kept going. And then I just switched to smoking heroin instead. I was smoking in a foil, chasing the dragon. That's the term they use. There's another nickname for you. And then it just kind of continued to spiral down from there. I eventually quit my job. I just stopped going to work. I, I literally just stopped going to work. And they were like, either you come back to work or we're going to have to fire you. And this is a city job, by the way. Good city job, $80,000 a year job. I was like, no, I'm good. And I quit. Didn't talk to anybody about it. Didn't talk to my wife about it. It's still something that's hard to talk about, but you know, it is what it is. We should be real about these things. This is what addiction can do to you. It doesn't just kill you, but it takes away everything along the way um, when it goes unchecked. And then the levy finally broke shortly after that. One night I snuck out of the house. I stole some money from my wife's purse, took the 
the Honda minivan that I used to own, drove down to the Tenderloin, and I didn't come home for 11 days. I went on an 11-day bender on the street. When uh, I finally was found by the police because my wife filed a missing persons report, they found me in my car with foil all over the place, needles all over the place. They didn't arrest me. They told me to go home. So I went home and my wife was waiting for me that day with a packed bag saying, I got a bed, I got a bed for you at a rehab. You either go to rehab or you got to get out of the house. And uh, at that moment, I was in withdrawal from heroin. I remember it still to this day. I'll never forget it. It was only a, a little over three years ago. And uh, actually, it was about, I guess, about four years ago now. And I said, um, I'm out of here. And I walked out, walked out of the house, hopped on the BART, went up to the BART station, hopped on the BART. And uh, I spent the next six months living in a, pretty much in a doorway on the street on Golden Gate Avenue in the Tenderloin. And that, that's uh, when I really went deep. Uh, it things got really deeper into the drug world, the drug culture out there. When is this? Two thousand eighteen. Two thousand eighteen. So from January to June of two thousand eighteen, I lived on the streets. I was homeless, straight up homeless. I didn't go home. I didn't have anywhere to go. My family had done that separation with love thing. Couldn't get any money from anybody. So I was left to my own devices. So I signed up for GA to try to get some money, get some food stamps. I would sell all those for cash and then use those for drugs, the food stamps. Uh, and then I started holding drugs for the dealers out there on the street. And that's how I got caught up in the criminal justice system because I was holding for different dealers and I would hold their stash for them, sit nearby them, and they would pay me in heroin or crack. Um, and uh, that's how I maintained my addiction. And that went went that way for about three months you know it was actually from my perspective on the street things were going great you know yeah i was homeless but i had all the drugs i needed and nobody was messing with me until the police did a sting one day in april of 2018 and they caught me holding for six different dealers at the same time with about four and a half ounces of heroin on me and i thought at that moment i was like that's it i'm done i'm gonna go to prison now because i have all these drugs but i ended up spending like 16 hours in jail and they, they OR'd me the next day, and I was released back into homelessness in full withdrawal. And I went straight back to Golden Gate Avenue, where they had told me to stay away from. They placed the stay away order on me. And I went right back, told the dealers what happened, showed them, showed them my jail ID so they wouldn't hack me up with a machete. And uh, they actually gave me a dime of heroin for my trouble. And I started that cycle over again, and that cycle repeated itself five more times over the span of three months. I would get caught holding drugs, caught violating my stay away order. Uh, until June of 2018 when I finally got arrested for the sixth time and I actually spent about three months in county. And then after that is when you went into treatment, right? Yeah. So, you know, they, they lowered my bail down <clears throat> enough so that, you know, I, I reached out to my brother who I hadn't spoken with in about a year. And he said, look, I'll bail you out on the condition that you go to rehab. And he'd been working with my public defender to find a treatment bed. And they found one at the Salvation Army ARC on Valencia and Cesar Chavez, which is a 12-step abstinence-based six-month inpatient program. And uh, he said, you, I can bail you out if you promise to go there. So he bailed me out and he literally the next morning, he dropped me off at that rehab. And that's where I found recovery was in that place because that place, one, one it was free, didn't cost any money because it's all done with private donations, right? It's not a Medi-Cal funded program or anything like that. It was free. Uh, and it was a, you know, they housed me, clothed me, fed me, gave me 12-step counseling. Yeah, it was faith-based. I had to go to church twice a week. I didn't care. 
I wasn't sleeping on the street anymore and I wasn't in jail anymore. Those are two big bonuses. So, you know, that's what worked for me. It helped turn my life around. How much time do you have now? Almost three years or three years? I had three years on June 24th. So Congratulations. I, yeah, thank you. So yeah, 20, 25 months, uh, no, 30, 37 months clean. Nice. Yeah. Three years in a, three years in a month. And it's, and that's abstinent. So the only, the only thing that I still do once in a while is I vape a little bit of nicotine and, and I drink, you know, three to four cups of coffee a day. Whenever I'm like sponsoring girls, I'm like, don't even fucking try to quit smoking in the first year. Smoke as much as you fucking want. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, this is the thing. It's like, that's one thing about that rehab. They let us smoke, they let us drink coffee. And it was critical because, you know, first of all, I was in there with like 90 guys. It was all men's program. Right. And most of those guys are meth addicts. So they're already fidgety and going nuts, you know, so the cigarettes really saved them. And for, for, uh, for everyone else, it was just something to do. And it was a way to socialize and with your, with mm-hmm. your, with other people and all that. And yeah, they told me the what? same thing. My sponsor told me the same thing. Don't try to quit smoking now. So right before the pandemic, before the lockdown, I was taking a, um, a, a meeting into the women's jail here in the city. Yep. And, um, talking to the girls and they were talking about how, oh, and I, I wanted to ask you that question. So when you were, when you got arrested those few times, did any of those times, did they give you information at all about treatment centers that you can go to? So yes. Um, okay. So there's two things about jail. So when you get arrested in San Francisco and you get booked down at 850 Bryant, you sit in front of a triage nurse and that triage nurse assesses your situation. And one of the questions that they ask you is, do you use illicit drugs? And are you struggling with addiction? They get it. They ask it in a roundabout way. I don't remember exactly how they asked, but you know, finally after the third or fourth time I answered, yes, I, I'm a heroin addict and I use this much heroin per day. And uh, I guess that was the sixth time. And they actually ended up giving me suboxone or buprenorphine in jail on a five-day taper to help me kick the opioid withdrawals. So that was super helpful because that made me feel better physically. And I was able to kind of, you know, skip past the actual white knuckling of heroin addiction physically. And then it just became psychological at that point for me more than anything else. Um, I feel like we should make people suffer. Right. You know? <laughs> well, like, they let me suffer. I mean, you have to be in full withdrawal before they give you uh, buprenorphine. So I was 36 hours deep into withdrawal, curled up in a ball on a mat in jail in a jail cell uh, uh, in a cold sweat before they said pill call. And they gave me Suboxone to help stop the opioid withdrawals. Um, but, you know, you're right about that. But at the same time, uh, you know, I just spent six months on the street, too, which is pretty shitty. Um, there, that's no kind of way to live for anybody. It's really kind of the place where you go to lose all hope. Um, you know, people ask me, they're like, you know, were you afraid of overdosing when you were on the street? And the answer I always give to them is that I didn't want to overdose and die, but I didn't care if I did. That's kind of how, where addiction can take you when you start getting close to that rock bottom. And then, you know, lucky for me, you know, they talk about in AA jails, institutions and death, right? I was two for, I was two yep. for three. I didn't hit the trifecta. Yep. I didn't die. Darn. Darn. Right. Yeah. I didn't die. I lived, I lived to tell the tale, which is, uh, you know, why I'm here talking to you today and I am, and I will be, and I am, and I always will be eternally grateful for, for getting that, that second chance at a different and better life. 
So they give you the Suboxone, but then when you leave, did they give you information about places that you could go? So one, one time, I think it was like my fifth arrest when I was getting my ankle monitor put on the, the sheriff brought me into a room, one of the deputies and said, I can get you into the Salvation Army today. And I'm like, Salvation Army, isn't that the place where you donate your clothes? I didn't know that that was a rehab. Right. So I was like, no, I'm good, man. I want to go back out to the street. And that, that, you know, with that ankle monitor, I was out for 24 hours before I violated the terms of my ankle monitor and they arrested me anyway. And I ended up going back to jail and then I spent three months in jail and, uh, in jail, that whole time I was in jail, nobody ever talked to me about treatment except for two guys that voluntarily, that were volunteers that did an AA meeting in the jail once every two weeks. They're the only ones that kind of talked about recovery. Now I went to church services. There was this, this old priest guy that was talking to us about God and all that stuff, but not about necessarily about drug treatment because not everybody that's in there is in there because they're struggling, that are struggling with addiction, right? So they're talking about turning your life around that whole thing. It wasn't until, you know, really, I credit my brother. He's the one that helped me, you know, uh, actually find a bed to go to. And the, the program that I went to, you know, it was it was a hard program. I It's the second toughest rehab in San Francisco. The toughest rehab in San Francisco, I think, is Delancey Street, mm-hmm. which is really a behavioral right. modification program. Is it mostly for cons or is it also for addicts as well? It, it is. It's for, it's for guys that are facing three strikes. Uh-huh. basically that are looking at life in prison and this is their last stop before it's life in prison. And most of them are struggling with substance use, right? Mm-hmm. Most of them are struggling with addiction, but the Salvation Army is all about addicts and alcoholics. And uh, it gets used a lot as a jail alternative uh, for, for drug courts and stuff. So they send people there. And so there's guys in there that are faking it to make it right. They just want to do the six months so they don't have to spend three years in jail. And then there's guys like me that wanted to give recovery an honest try. Because I had lost everything already. I had lost control of everything. And, you know, addiction is all about control. So I remember sitting between two cars when I was homeless and all the only control I had left was this piece of foil in my hands and some heroin. And I'm like, as long as I got this, I'm okay. That's how small my life became in addiction. So having lost even that and ending up in jail where you've lost completely everything, uh, going to, having an opportunity or a chance to go to a place where I could get my life back was, uh, was to me, I... I, I guess I was old enough or wise enough or desperate enough or maybe all three of them to see that opportunity. You're blessed. That's what it is. I don't know what it is, but you know, we're blessed. Well, yeah, um, you are. Yeah, you are too, clearly. So, so we're here. So when I was taking that meeting in, um, you know, I was talking to the girls and they said that they will give them information about treatment centers that they could go to, but then whenever they would go, that there would be no availability. And then this other girl was getting, she was like 22. She was getting released that night. Like they were going to release her at 10 o'clock at night and she's homeless. She doesn't have anywhere to fucking, how could she possibly stay sober? You know, she has to use. So this really intrigued me. So then I started to do some research about what are the services, like the treatment centers for people here in the city. And I was expecting to find results saying that, they're always at 100% capacity. And that's not what I found. And I found articles talking about how over the past several years, this was this must have been beginning of 2020, how over the past several years, the amount of services like addiction services or mental health services that the city provides has been decreasing over time. And I was trying to find out some of the, you know, what could be part of the cause of that. And then one thing I did find was that I guess San Francisco used to take care of that themselves. And then they, they outsourced it to some 
California mental health thing at large. And that that created like a bunch more red tape and paperwork and made the intake um, more timely. Do you, are you, do you know about that? Yeah. So, so what they did in the nineties is they started to farm out a lot of their addiction and treatment services to nonprofit organizations. That's part of the issue. Okay. Uh, Part of the issue also is that the city switched their, this, okay. So, you know, the city and the whole country has gone into a, has pushed towards harm reduction. Right. And so what they've done for treatment programs is they've required treatment programs in order to be promoted, sanctioned and funded by the city, they must practice harm reduction. So abstinence-based programs are not funded or, or promoted or sanctioned by the city and county of San Francisco. There are none. That is still the case today. That is, that is the case today. So like the Salvation Army, which is an abstinence-based program, it does not have any funding from the city and county of San Francisco or the Department of Public Health. They do it all on private donations as an example, right? So a lot of abstinence-based rehabs that used to have contracts with the city that got funding lost that lost those fundings because they didn't want to go to a harm reduction model, which is, you know, you don't get kicked out if you test dirty. You uh, They have to have clean needles and paraphernalia available to you at all times so that if you do relapse, you use clean, clean equipment to do so with. Uh, and they changed their approach. So a lot of those rehabs went out of business. They closed. And you saw the amount of beds decrease to 500 and I think it's 543 beds, something like that in San Francisco, and only 35 detox beds in all of San Francisco uh, that are sanctioned by the Department of Public Health. There are other detox beds and rehab beds, but some of them are contracted with the state, like the Harbor Light is, which is another Salvation Army program. They get funding directly from the state, not from the city. And, uh, and then there's other programs that are just privately funded or that are private pay programs. Uh, but none of those show up like on the Department of Public Health treatment website. They have a dashboard, the treatment dashboard website that shows how many beds they have. Well, that's what I wanted to say. So it's called what, like findtreatment.s or SF. I was just looking org, at it yeah. before, um, right before we talked. So, and looked at like what the current availability is right now. Cause, yep. cause here's the thing there, you know, didn't they just announce that they're going to build a bunch more treatment centers and beds for people? Okay. Well, that's great and all, but like, as of right now, detoxes are only 75% full and residential, like first 30 days, that's only 80% full. What is going on? They're building, they're doing more treatment beds, but like the ones that they have aren't even fully at capacity. Right. They added four, they're adding 400 beds, 200 of them more or less are for mental health and 200 are for drug treatment. Um, So here's the thing. I'm glad that they're promoting treatment now finally in San Francisco. It's something that I've been advocating for for the last almost three years that they do here in San Francisco because nobody's getting clean right now. Nobody. Nobody's getting clean. Why? How can they? How can you get clean? I know. And the incentive too. I mean, I just feel like it's comfortable for them. So I'm glad about that. But you're right. We already have open beds right now. Yes. And we should have like 10 times more beds like are needed but then the ones right. that we have aren't even full. So, so then the question really becomes is that if it's not a capacity issue, then what is it? The fucking What's city, the you know, it just really pisses me off. Like it really, really gets me going, you know, and I'm not a native. Um, I've been here for about seven years, but, um, you know, you have people that don't have shoes 
that are unmedicated schizophrenics that are talking to trash cans. And you think that that's compassionate to let them stay on the street like that is so fucked up. Right. So, you know, I'm not going to use COVID as a scapegoat. All that COVID did is amplify everything. That's all it did. It was like, put it on blast. Yeah, especially when they stopped like arresting the dealers in the tenderloin for that period of time too. Great Uh, idea, great Uh, idea. Right, of a problem that was already here. And the problem is this. This is what I found out in my research. So, you know, as the country moved towards housing first for the homeless issue, they also moved away from the shelter system, funding the shelter system. So, So, for example... In New York City, they have something called a right to shelter ordinance where they where 96% of the people that are homeless in, in New York have a bed to sleep in at night indoors because of, they have enough homeless shelter capacity to handle it. Whereas in San Francisco, only about 25% of the homeless people on the street actually have a bed available to sleep in in the shelter because we don't have enough shelters. And the argument's always been, well, shelter sucks. Well, yeah, don't a lot of them choose to be on the street? Well, that's the thing. I mean, there's a lot of different issues, right? You know, shelters aren't perfect. I'm not saying they are, but I promise you, and I've stayed in a homeless shelter and I've stayed on the street. A shelter is still better than the street, period. I don't care what any advocate or activist says. And this is the big giant misnomer that drives me crazy. Our homeless crisis and our drug crisis would be only half of what it is if we actually had enough shelter space and then had the political will to compel people mm-hmm. uh, into, into shelter so that they could access real services to find their way to drug or mental health treatment. Because you can do all the street outreach that you want, but the bottom line is that homeless people move around, man. They're not, they're not stationed in one place. I used to go from block to block to block to block to block. And if you're doing homeless outreach all the time, you might see a few people that are stationary in the same place, but most people move on. They move along. How are you going to reach them, let alone convince them to trust you enough to go into drug treatment? We need some, some more tools to do that, uh, to entice people into drug treatment. I don't want to say compel because that's the big hot button issue. I personally think mandated treatment is a good thing. The president thinks it's a good thing, but the city doesn't think it's a good thing. Yeah, because they suck. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> there's evil. Right. Um, <laughs> it really pisses me off. I got to get out of the city too. No, I, lo- I love how you say that though, oh. because it's, you know, we suck at handling our drug crisis. We suck at handling our homeless crisis in San Francisco. It's terrible. It's just the, 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 look, I've been, I've been to Skid Row in LA, Andrea. I'm sorry. I just want to just add this. There's way more homeless people down there, like 5,000 homeless people in a 10 block radius. Right. But the people in San Francisco that are on the street are far, far sicker than the people that yes. are on the street in LA. hundred percent. So Yes. So for you though, you know, you granted it's, you know, still hard, but you were just on the streets for six months and it's hard enough for you to have gotten yourself out of that situation. But then think about somebody who's been on the streets for like five, 10, you know, it just seems impossible that they could get out of that. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you're right. You get used to the lifestyle. I I had to rationalize in my head to make it okay to be sleeping in a doorway on a piece of cardboard. I didn't even have a tent. I was just had a couple of jackets. What's well, like the mental like, illness of it? You know what I mean? Like what the, happens the trauma yeah, yeah. over time? Like the, I feel like some of them are just past the point of return and they need to be like in some sort of conservatorship, you know? Right. So I I've said this before publicly and I stand by it. There is a subset of people on the street that require intervention. I required intervention. 
My intervention was law, was law enforcement, but I still required intervention or I'd still be out there or I'd be dead right now. That's the bottom line. And until we get comfortable with that and set some realistic parameters around conservatorship, this problem is not going to go away. No shit. You, can, you can't build your way with housing. It's just not going to happen because even if we built enough housing to house everybody in San Francisco, you're going to turn around and one, half the people that were waiting for that housing won't be alive to realize it. And two, there's going to be a whole new batch of homeless people. Uh, the mayor of LA even said that today, that people are arriving in like Venice Beach, for example, faster than we can house them, right, as homeless people. So it's not just a San Francisco problem. It's a regional problem. It's a statewide problem. Uh, and we need to start looking at it at a, in a bigger picture at like a statewide level than at a local level. I know. I hate to be like a downer, but I'm just like, I really am not optimistic about this getting fixed, at least anytime soon. But obviously you have to try. Well, right. We have to try. And we're right at the beginning of the fentanyl uh, crisis. This is the beginning. We're not in the middle or near the end. This is just the start. Next year, it's going to be over 100,000 overdose deaths nationwide. And then the number is going to keep growing and keep growing until they make some harder decisions on how they want to try to mitigate this crisis. Here's another disturbing fact. I think it was like on in December, maybe right before Christmas, headline of this article in the Chronicle, um, there had been 173 COVID deaths, like at that point in time in the city. And in that same time period, there had been 621 fatal overdoses. This city cracked down so hard on COVID. Why couldn't they just do half the amount of effort to like, look at this crisis? I, I can't argue with you. I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, they're, it, they're two different things, but they're the same. If we had the same type of energy and resources that we committed to COVID, uh, that we committed to, to a combination of target specific enforcement of the street level drug dealing that's going on, and expanding treatment access for people, providing real treatment on demand for people, and then using the system, using drug court to compel people that break the law because of their addiction into treatment. You would see a lot more results. And you know, the bottom line is we're not doing any of that. Look, drug dealers are being arrested at record rates in San Francisco right now, right? And they're, being, they're spending an average of three days in county, right? Including repeat offenders. You, we're going to be approach a thousand overdose deaths this year in 2021. It'll be somewhere between 700 and a thousand before it's all mm -hmm. said and done, right? You've got hundreds of organized drug dealers on the street, not just some dude like the guy I was buying from that's selling his own script. We're talking about guy kids that are being brought up here from Central America that are selling on the street, uh, either to pay off some kind of debt or because they don't have any bread at home or the, in the country that they came from and they're trying to make money and send it home to their families back there. Uh, but the bottom line is that the drug that they're selling now is illicit fentanyl. Yeah. And I really feel like that fentanyl has changed the game. A hundred percent. It's changed the game. Yeah. Because, you, you know, I knew people that were heroin addicts for 30 years right? and they're still alive and not having a good life, but they're still alive. But fentanyl, shortens that expectancy to like two years. If you continually use fentanyl, you will, chances are you will overdose and nobody will be there to Narcan you and you will die. And that's what we're really facing. Well, I want to talk about Narcan. In a way, a part of me feels like Narcan is, if we're just reviving someone just like over and over and over, 
in a way, are we somehow just like prolonging their misery? Obviously, the argument is if they're alive, there's always a shot that they could get sober. But at the same time, is it like enabling? What do you think about Narcan? So Narcan saves lives. Okay. Narcan has created a situation where that if we didn't have Narcan, we would have had 7,000 people dead from overdose in San Francisco last year instead of 713. So look, one of the, the original foundation of harm reduction was the idea, harm reduction was the idea that we keep somebody alive long enough until the, in the hopes that they find the miracle of recovery. That was the original foundation of, of harm reduction. That foundation has been twisted into something else. It's no longer, that's no longer their primary goal. Their primary goal is to just keep you alive and then nobody talks to you about treatment. So nobody talks to you about recovery either. So I'm always for saving lives. So if Narcan is saving lives, that's great. We should have more of it. It should be more easily accessible. Does it prolong the agony for people? Yes, you could argue that. But does it keep people alive? Yes, because you always have to have hope that someday they're going to reach a point where they're just sick and tired and they want help. And then that help has to be there. And that's the problem is that if you're, if you're on the street and you're ready to go to drug treatment in San Francisco and you walk into the Department of Public Health and you say, I want to go to treatment. So unless you, unless you line up at Health Right 360 at 8, 8 o'clock in the morning, you might get a detox bed that day. But if you just walk into DPH and ask them for help, the wait time is seven, somewhere between seven and 51 days to get into treatment. And if you're a fentanyl addict, you're going to be dead by that time. So we're really doing a disservice by not having true treatment on demand. And we passed a proposition a few years back. It was called Prop I, and that was supposed to be treatment on demand. And the Department of Public Health, basically, I'll just say it like this. They're lying. There is no treatment on demand. They're full of it. They're full of shit. And they got called out at a board of supervisors meeting a couple of months ago about it. And uh, there's going to be some um, changes coming, uh, hopefully for the better to make it easier and faster for people to access treatment in San Francisco. And so if we have that as the backup to Narcan, that would be ideal. But I believe just, just from a humanitarian standpoint that yes, we should just give people more Narcan because if we stop, we're going to lose thousands of people and the damage will just be so awful. I mean, it's already so awful that I can't bear the fact that two people a day are dying of drug overdose in San Francisco. Imagine if that was 20 people a day. Imagine how horrible that would be um, to lose that to lose that much life. So, with that said, you know, am I a big fan of harm reduction? I'm I'm a fan of certain aspects of it, but I'm not a fan of what it's kind of morphing into right now. Yeah. Um, I still really, really believe that our way out is to promote treatment and to promote recovery, and to go out and do the outreach, talk to people, change talk not just to the people on the street, not just the people using, but talk to our leaders, our politicians. Our district attorney is literally doing our city a disservice by just con continuing to let out these offenders that, that drive crime. And I promise you that drugs play a part in all of that. And he argues that, you know, I'm not saying to go arrest drug users. It's not illegal to be a drug addict. It's not illegal not to be homeless. We're talking about the dealer. Or oh, the, right. We're talking about the fucking dealers, dude. Right. It's almost like blood is on their hands. They arrest a dealer and then they release him the next day. And then that guy goes to the same corner and he sells drugs and somebody overdoses and dies. Like that is at the right. hands of the fucking city. Right. They're complicit. And I've said that publicly too. And, you know, they know it. They know they need to do better. They care? They, they care. I promise you that the pressure is on in the city. I, I mean, I've talked to members of the Board of Supervisors. 
uh, people on the inside in the city, they're feeling tremendous pressure to act on this drug crisis and the fentanyl crisis and the overdose crisis. It's just that they, they're, hand, they're handcuffed by their own ideology. Let's put it that way, right? Yeah. Because everybody has PTSD from the war on drugs, right? So anything that has to do with enforcement is like just people go nuts when you talk about that. You know, and we've got a DA that actually talks about how the drug dealers were victims of trafficking. You know, that whole, it's a bunch of bullshit. I know because I used to hang with the dealers. That's just a bunch of garbage. But, you know, that's, you know, what a public defender would say, right? And he's a public defender. So you have to keep it in perspective. The only thing that, that's good about what they're doing right now is the Narcan. And if they can ramp up distribution of buprenorphine to people, of Suboxone, to help people fight the opioid cravings that they get, the withdrawals that they get when they're on, uh, using fentanyl. That's kind of the only way out. Like fentanyl is so strong that you can't white knuckle it. It's not heroin. It's 10 times stronger than heroin, which means the withdrawals are 10 times stronger. They need help. They need medication, medically assisted treatment to help them get off of that drug. Um, and it's good that we're offering it in jail to people. But the problem is, is that now with our DA, we're not holding people long enough in jail to even go into withdrawal to get mm -hmm. the Suboxone to help them get clean. We're just OARing people and letting them out or releasing them to pretrial diversion. And that's a joke in San Francisco. They've actually been caught red-handed manipulating their stats about how well of a job they're doing. Um, it, it just gets, it's just so bad. It's like we got, the city got, is like overwhelmed and they don't have a response. And then the response that they want to give uh, is not helping. No shit. Because people are still dying. So until, you know, death is the ultimate statistic. That's what I've said. I've said that publicly too. Is that death is the ultimate statistic. And until you slow down the deaths, then things aren't really working, are they? It's the bottom line. I know. I know you were on that, the street level drug dealing task force or whatever. What were, yep. what came of that? And do you think it was beneficial? And It, it was beneficial. It, at times it was pretty frustrating. So, you know, the, what were the solutions again? I was like looking at it. So they, they, there are six different rec six six recommendations that we made. Uh, one of them was to establish an oversight body of all the different coordinated efforts to address the drug crisis in San Francisco. That's actually a good idea, so that, that we can have more oversight about where the money goes, and so that we're not uh, kind of overlapping our efforts from one organization to another in how they uh, are addressing and mid trying to mitigate the drug crisis on the street. Um, one of them was safe injection sites, safe consumption sites. I don't know how you feel about that. I'm, I kind of have mixed feelings about safe consumption sites. I don't necessarily think they're going to make a big difference. And it's definitely not the panacea that, you know, Senator Scott Weiner and others say that it's going to be. And Gavin Newsom says it's going to be, um, do addicts even give a shit? You know what I mean? It's like, I didn't, I didn't give a shit. I, I didn't care where I used and I certainly didn't want to leave my, to go too far from the drugs, number one. And number two, I didn't want to leave my shit behind because it wouldn't be there when I got back. And, yeah. uh, you know, I didn't really care where I used as long as I was able to use. So that's just me. I, I don't know. You know, I, they say it's going to help people. They say in Canada, it's going to help people, but yet the actual, you know, on, on the West coast, the worst opioid crisis and overdose crisis on all of the West coast is in Vancouver where they have safe injection sites. So it kind of makes me scratch my head like, Ooh. one of the recommendations we did get through that I supported wholeheartedly was to have uh, the, the, I think the actual term was meaningful sanctions against repeat level drug dealers, repeat offending drug dealers on the street. 
meaningful sanctions that include services during jail and after jail as well to try to turn them away from drug dealing. And it was the only criminal justice measure that we could get enough votes on to get into the final set of recommendations to the Board of Supervisors. And at the last minute, they tried to torpedo that one too and take it out and have it all just be based on a demand response and no deterrence of supply whatsoever. And that doesn't work. You can reduce the demand. I mean, the, the way the system is set up right now, the way the system is set up right now, we're never gonna be able to reduce demand. So we have to figure out a way to work together to mitigate the supply while we ramp up services to reduce the demand because it's not gonna happen overnight. Just like housing for the homeless doesn't happen overnight. It takes five years to, to build more housing units, three to five years. So this whole stuff where people talk about all this stuff, they, they act like it's gonna happen tomorrow. It's gonna take two, three, four, five years of implementation before it actually goes in, into effect. And by that time, we will, we will have lost two, three or 4,000 people to overdose deaths just in the city alone. And are we cool with that? That's the question that we really need to ask. Are we okay with a thousand people a year dying from drug overdose in San Francisco? That's really the question. And if we're not okay with that, what are we really prepared to do about it that we can do now, today? You know, it was just interesting where, you know, the public defender and the district attorney were in alignment with their thinking of, removing all the criminal justice response. And I was really shocked by that because the district attorney is supposed to be the top cop in San Francisco. That's what Kamala Harris used to call herself, right? Our vice president, she used to call herself the top cop in San Francisco, yet that they're actually actively, actively railing for to remove any kind of criminal justice response at all to what's happening on our streets. And again, the criminal justice response is not directed towards users. It's directed towards drug dealers, specifically repeat drug dealers. There's at least 250 of them out there on the street right now that have an open case in San Francisco for felony drug dealing. It's a felony that are out there slinging heroin and fentanyl and meth and crack right now, right at this very second. Well, what, like, what the fuck is the underlying motivation? You know, the DA and all of this stuff what is it? Is is it an image thing? Is it a way for them to like remain in control and have power? Like, uh, do they really believe that this is the right thing to do? I don't fucking understand. So yes, they really believe this is the right thing to do. They are motivated by ideology, period. Their ideology consists of complete and total decarceration. I think Chase Bodine, if you asked him privately, he would tell you that he wants to abolish prisons altogether, right? And most of the people that work with him do agree with that sentiment. They agree and, you know, they, they argue that, that the United States has this mass incarceration problem, and we do, but the numbers have also been steadily declining since 1991 in the United States around incarceration. And around incarceration for drugs, the number is is, has decreased in California to less than 1% of the jail population that are in there for marijuana, as, as an example, that they keep using as this talking point. It's almost like they're pulling stats out of the 80s and bringing them forward to today and trying to apply them to today's standards to what's going on. And what's going on is not at all like it was in the 80s when you got caught with drugs. Look, when I was on the street, man, I was smoking crack one day. I was standing on, the, on Hyde and Golden Gate by the trees right there, smoking crack. And I was sitting by a, a tree, hitting my crack pipe, and I turned around and a cop had ridden up to me on a bicycle. And I looked at him and I was shocked. And I was so shocked that I exhaled my crack smoke right into his face. 
like blue smoke right into his face. And you would have thought, what do you think should have happened to me at that point? Get my ass kicked, maybe arrested, whatever. Nope. Just maybe drop the pipe and walk away. So I had to drop the pipe and crush it, walk away, went up to the liquor store, bought another pipe for three bucks, went right back to the same spot, started smoking crack again. An hour later, I turned around and the same cop who was making his rounds had pulled up behind me again. And he was like, really, man, you're back here again. Mm. And he made me drop my pipe again and break it and walk away. So then I went and bought another pipe, you know, and you can hustle out there. You hustle up your money for the pipe. Oh, you go to the dealer you're holding for, say, instead of giving me a nickel of crack, can you give me three bucks so I can go buy a pipe and they'll give it to you there. I just hustled up $3 to go buy my drug paraphernalia. And now they just give that shit out free anyway. They give you free pipes. They drive around giving out free pipes, free crack pipes, free meth pipes, screens, Brillo for your screen. Um, wow, fabulous. Yeah, along, along you know, foil, I'll straws. i there the next time I run out of aluminum foil. Well, you know, that's the thing. So one thing, look, I'm all for needle exchange. I've, yep, I'm a big yep, supporter yep. of needle exchange. It stops bloodborne disease. Yep, yep. How does foil and straws stop anything? That's not harm reduction. That they have crossed the line to enabling. And I've said that and I'll say it again. And it's the truth from a guy that was a former drug addict, man, a recovering addict. I am. That is enabling. Well, where can people find you if they, if you want to be found and how can people help you? So I'm on Twitter. You can find me at my handle is at T Wolf recovery, T W O L F recovery. I also have a website, www.tomwolf.org. I also do speaking engagements. If you're interested in talking, having me talk to your, you know, at a community meeting on a panel or doing public speaking at, at some kind of, you know, something that you're doing, please reach out to me. Uh, there's a link on my website where you can do that. And you can also see all my media stuff. So you can kind of see my story and what I've been through the last three years and what I'm trying to do now um, to try to improve, not just San Francisco, but California and then beyond. Uh, I'm moving more, I'm moving towards the realm of drug policy too, to um, thinking about starting a nonprofit. I've actually filed the paperwork for that already. Um, and that's my goal of my nonprofit is to educate people about recovery as much as possible. And to also serve as a counterweight to some of these riskier, dangerous policies around uh, around drug use in the United States and how we can um, try to find some kind of consensus. Well, that's amazing. Thank you. Seriously, Thank you. for all that you do. And I'm so glad we got to talk. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you. I hope you heard something that can inspire you. And I hope that you are feeling grateful. Thanks again to Tom for your honesty. You are truly a miracle and you are amazing. And I can't wait to see what's in store for you. Big things, I know. Check out the show notes for ways to contact him. Also, you can find links to my social media. I'm at Adult Child Pod on Instagram and TikTok. Give me a damn five-star rating already on Apple Podcasts, please. I will see you guys next week for another episode. It's going to be with this guy named Brad Yates. I'm super pumped to talk to him. He's big on the YouTube. And also, go listen to the Dr. Drew episode. I'm a little bit nervous about all the likes and ums that I probably said and you knows. When I do my interviews, let's be honest, I have to edit out a lot of likes and ums and you knows. 
So I'm just bracing myself for all the likes and you knows in this interview with Dr. Drew. Um, I'll see you next week. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. I promise.